Well, it's good to meet with you again, and I thank you so much for your faithfulness and for the time that you are taking to uh, tune in and to glean some of the things that I'm thinking as we go through our Sunday school lessons. It is uh, always difficult to just open up a booklet and look and see an outline like we give you and know exactly uh, what the thoughts are. And so for um, all of these years, what, 24 years now that I've been here, I've made a Sunday school teaching audio for uh, all of the teachers, and they listen to it because they not only do their own study, but they also need to know what my point is or what I'm thinking about, and it gives me a chance to communicate it to them. Well, this is a Sunday school lesson for October the 18th, of 2020 and we are starting our classes back up this Sunday and so uh, the audio portion of this video will be made available to the teachers to help them with their preparation but we're going to uh, continue with these videos and uh, broadcasting them on Sunday nights because of a couple of reasons there may be some people some of you that may not quite be comfortable yet coming back to Sunday school and sitting in close proximity to other people. And that's, that's fine if you feel that way. And uh, we want to help you and support you. And this gives you a chance to watch the audio and to keep up with uh, what we're doing. The other thing is, I got to thinking that when people travel or, you know, are out of town for various reasons or maybe even for sickness they don't have an opportunity to uh, catch up with what the rest of the church is doing and so uh, if we can keep these videos going then that will help those who uh, are not yet comfortable coming back and it also helps those who need to travel or whatever to uh, stay up with everything and uh, keep current with our study and the audio portion of this, Gary's going to take off and make available on our website to our teachers. So um, that's our plan, and um, we're going to uh, keep on going with it, and hopefully it works out well. Now, we've been looking in um, John chapter 17, so go ahead and take your Bibles, and let's turn there. And we've been talking about the greatest prayer ever prayed. As we said before, the Lord's Prayer is not really a prayer that Jesus prayed. It's a model that he gave to the disciples. But in this, the longest prayer recorded in the Bible, we actually get to um, hear and experience the words of Jesus Christ as he prays. And he prays to his Father. He prays for himself. He prays for his disciples. And then he does something amazing. He prays for those who will believe in Christ through the words of the apostles. Well, that would be us. That would be us. In fact, in Acts 2.42, it says that the early church continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. And so God used the apostles to give us the gospel and to teach us how it is that we are to receive Christ and to live and to walk in Christ. And so when you look at the New Testament from Romans through Revelation, you're finding the doctrine of the apostles. And we want to continue in that. And that's what Jesus is doing, praying for us, even there in the garden. 
Now, there are a lot of people who don't realize that, and they don't really think about the fact that Jesus, as our high priest, the book of Hebrews says he ever lives to make intercession for us. In Romans chapter 8, it talks about the same thing. Several different places that Jesus in his ascended position, he's not just sitting on a throne looking over the edge at what's going on on earth and waiting for his time to return. Now he's doing that, of course. And he's ready to return. And we don't know the day or the hour. The Father does. But he's also doing more than that. The Bible talks about in 1 John, that we have an advocate before the Father. Well, that's kind of a fancy term for a lawyer. And there is a court case that seems to be opened up over and over and over, and the devil opens it up against you and against all other believers. Boy, he must be busy if you think about what that must be like. And he brings charges against us based upon our sin. It's funny, uh, not funny, haha, but strange, how the devil will use his powers to tempt us into sin. It'll be okay. Nobody will ever know. You'll get away with it. It's not that big a deal. God doesn't really care. All of those things that he tells us that we believe, and he is the one that uh, in the book of James it says, that everyone is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. So it basically comes back to us. But what is it that happens in there? What is it that entices us to sin? That's a fishing term. And it means to drop the bait. Who's dropping the bait? Well, the devil does that through his, through his demons. He can't be everywhere but he uh, does have his fallen angels, demons, evil spirits that uh, come and attack, intimidate, harass, and they also are involved in temptation. So they drop the bait. They've been watching you, and they are good students of you. They know where your weaknesses are. They know your vulnerabilities, and they also know what you like. And so when they drop the bait, it is tailor-made for you. And so you're drawn away of your own lust and enticed. It's your fault that you took the bait. It's not theirs. It's yours. And your own evil desires are what cause you to want them. Well, when the enemy does this, he does it with the lie that, it, again, it won't matter. You won't get caught, etc., etc. And then as soon as you fall for it, he becomes your accuser. And can you imagine when the devil stands before the throne of the Most High God and he calls your name and calls you out because of your sin? And you know what? There are times when he lies. There are times when he distorts things. But when we sin and when he is the one who dropped the bait and we took the bait, well, he doesn't have to lie about that, does he? He tells the truth. And uh, when that happens, as he brings charges against us, it may be something like this. I don't know exactly how it works, but it may be something like that. Did you see what he or she did? And they claim to be a Christian. And you said, because this is really pointed toward God, you said the soul that sins shall die. And you said that these type of people will not inherit the kingdom of heaven so let me have them. They don't deserve 
to be under your protection, under your grace. Okay? You know what? He's right. He's right. He doesn't have to twist. He doesn't have to pervert. He doesn't have to lie. He's right. So what's our defense? We did it. We stand guilty as charged. And can you imagine as there is silence until someone at the right hand of the Father speaks up? And Jesus stands to our defense and he holds out his hands with nail prints in them and he says, that's right, Father, but the fine has been paid, the debt has been paid, and it's paid in full. And can you imagine as the father says, this is my child, their sins have been paid for, this is not a courtroom matter, this is a family matter, and he throws the case out of court because of the defense of Jesus Christ, our advocate, as he stands up for us and intercedes for us on our behalf. Now that, how many times does that happen? Because when you think about sin... Sin can be something that you do that is wrong. Well, that'd be bad enough. But sin can also be the things that you don't do but should have done. I mean, we all know we're supposed to witness. Did you witness today? No? Well, that's a sin. We all know that we're supposed to pray. Did you pray today? No? Well, then that would be a sin. See what I mean? You skip church. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 tell us not to do that. Did you do that? Well, then that would be a sin. See what I'm saying? Something you should have done, but you didn't do. But did you know it can also be the things that we think? And so uh, we have wicked imaginations and those kind of things, wicked motives. We do one thing outwardly, but we've got another thing going on inwardly. We're hypocrites, and that is called sin. So can you imagine how many times the devil brings accusation against us? And can you imagine how many times that, uh, boy, that came out funny, didn't? Can you imagine how many times the Lord Jesus has to defend us? Because it's not just you, it's all believers who are living here on earth. And uh, that's one aspect. But the Bible also tells us that he ever lives to make intercession for us. You see, as an all-knowing God, he knows what you're getting ready to go through. He knows your capability. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your vulnerability. He knows the plan of the enemy as they ambush you. He knows all of that that's going on. Do you remember when he told Peter uh, before the crucifixion, he said, you're going to deny me. And Satan has desired you And then he makes this statement, but I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Okay? And Peter's faith did not fail. He had a momentary lapse, but he returned and he became a powerful witness for Jesus Christ in the book of Acts. And all the rest of his life, he was a faithful believer. So Jesus' prayer was answered. His faith did not fail. And I think about that. There are things getting ready to happen to you today that you don't know about. There are things that the enemy has planned for you, traps that are set, situations that are going to arise, 
relationship problems, ethical problems, all kinds of things, morality problems. All of these things are going to come up. And Jesus has prayed for you that your faith would not fail. When you look in John 17, you find um, an example of how Jesus prays. And sometimes you may feel alone. Nobody prayed for me. My prayer request wasn't mentioned or whatever. That's really not true. Jesus is praying for you. And why we would get our feelings hurt because people maybe forget about us or don't take us seriously or don't stand with us. When we have the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who is standing with us and he never fails us. That ought to bring a smile to your face. And it ought to do more than that. It ought to bring a smile to your heart. He is watching over you. He is covering you. And he is praying for you. And he is defending you. That's an amazing and a wonderful thing. So, with that being said, let's talk about this. Because Jesus said in verse 1, Father, the hour has come. What does he mean by the hour has come? The Greek word there, hora, is the word for hour and uh, means literally hour. But I think it's um, not maybe quite as concrete there as we think it is because he is talking about timing. The time, we could say, has come. And it's the time for his death. It's his time to be crushed by the wrath of God. And it's also time for him to begin his high priestly ministry as he does. When you look in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, the uh, disciples say, is it at this time that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times nor the seasons. He uses uh, words in here like chronos. Um, if you've ever seen a watch that's called a chronograph, um, that's the Greek word here. It means the ticking of the clock, the moving of the minute hand and the hour hand. And when Jesus talks about that, we would understand the train is coming at uh, 5.02. Be on board because it leaves at 5.05. That's the ticking of the clock. But there's another word. It's called kairos. And kairos means uh, time or hour. Um, we might hear uh, Winston Churchill speak and say, this is our darkest hour. Okay, What is he speaking of? The ticking of the clock? No, he's talking about an era. He's talking about a season. He's talking about a span of time when these things are happening. And that's kairos. When Jesus is talking here about his hour coming, it's not an hour on the clock. Oh, it's uh, 510, I've got to head toward the clock. It's not that kind of thing. It's saying that now we have entered into a new season. We've entered into a new phase of life. And Jesus is set toward Jerusalem. He knows what's going to happen. He is ready for that. And as he is praying in the garden, 
He's praying this prayer in John 17 to get himself ready to glorify the Father. His main concern is, Father, I want to glorify you as I go through the betrayal and the arrest and the beatings and even the horrific death on the cross. Glorify you. He prays for his disciples. He knows what they are going to go through during this time. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be horrific for them. And it's going to frighten them. They're going to run. They're going to hide. And he also is praying for those of us who are going to believe through his death, burial, and resurrection later on. And so isn't it interesting that when he is getting ready to face his darkest hour, he is praying for us and he continues to pray for us as we face our darkest hour. Now a priest always does what he does for the sake of others. Why did the high priest get himself cleansed and dressed and ready to go into the Holy of Holies? Because he had to take the sins of Israel, the sins of the nation, the sins of the people in there. Why did the priest get themselves ready to offer the sacrifice? Because they were taking the sins of people. They were going on behalf of others before the Lord. Isn't it amazing now because of what Jesus has done that we actually are priests and we can go directly before God. But how often do you go before God on behalf of someone else? Yes, I know you've got things that only you can pray about in your own life, but the Bible calls on us also to do what Jesus does and to intercede as a priest for other people in their dark hours and in their dark times. The priest would do what he did for the sake of others. And so as priests, we want to take others with us like Jesus did as we go before the Lord. Now, when you think about the word prayer, in Old English, you would uh, hear somebody come up to a nobleman or a king and they would say, Oh, king, I pray thee, let me do this or this. See, prayer was not always just a religious term. It would include that. But prayer could be a beggar an inferior coming before someone who is vastly superior. I pray, I beg, we might say. I'm begging you to do this. That's one way to look at the word prayer. Is that the way we come before God? Kind of, kind of. We recognize that. And uh, there's also the kind of prayer where two equals, when they meet together and they meet face to face, and one makes a request of another. And so uh, how was Jesus praying when he was in the garden? This is Jesus, the God-man, the man who, according to John chapter 1, was able to be with God. The Greek indicates face-to-face with God the Father. This is God the Son, who is co-equal in nature and attributes with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. It's the Trinity, And uh, think about Jesus in eternity past, meeting with the Father, meeting with the Holy Spirit, planning out eternity, planning out redemption, planning out salvation, planning out prophecy, all of those things, however they did that, and speaking together as equals. Distinct persons, yes, but one God and speaking as equals. And this is the way that Jesus prays when he stands before the Lord here in the garden praying for us. This is an equal making a request. And when we look at all of this and we see that we are included 
in the prayer of Jesus. Let me just say this. I fully understand Jesus praying for himself. This, this is a climatic time. I understand Jesus praying for his apostles. He's been with them for three years. He knows them. He loves them. He spent time with them. They know him and they love him. And can you imagine how distraught they are going to be when he is no longer with them? I understand him taking time to pray for them. But then as he goes on down in his prayer, he takes time to pray for me. I haven't been born. I haven't even been thought of yet. And yet I'm included in his prayer, as are you. This is the kind of thing that astounds me about the love and the grace and the mercy of our Lord. So let's talk about this. Why does Jesus intercede for us? And we'll make the point and then read our text. Save a little bit of time. And number one would be because we belong to God. Notice verse 9. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. How in the world do we belong to God, and then God gives us to Jesus, and now we belong to him? That is one of those things where I don't fully understand that, and neither do you or anyone else. But the Bible does teach, especially in here and other places, that you and I, in God's divine decree, in election and all of that, God has given you as a love gift to the Lord Jesus Christ. Makes me wonder sometimes. There are some people that I look at and I go, they're a love gift? Makes me question, how much does the father love the son, right? But sometimes in my pride, I can look and I could see how the Lord would choose me. I could see how I could be valuable to the Lord. I could see how I could contribute to the kingdom. Isn't that amazing how arrogant we can get in light of divine election? You see, election should never make you strut. It should never make you feel good about yourself in the ways that I just described. That's called depravity. That's called pride. See, the truth of the matter is, when we read Romans chapter 3, all of us were of unsalvageable worth, but God in his grace, mercy, and love has chosen, according to the good pleasure of his will, to redeem us and to present us as a bride, as a gift to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that shouldn't make us strut. That should make us fall on our face before the Lord and say, worthy is the Lamb. We belong to God. And Jesus prays for us. And notice how he makes this statement. I do not pray for the world, but for those you have given me. Some people that like to argue with election say, oh, we're all elect and it's our choice that makes a difference. Jesus doesn't see it that way. In fact, he made a distinction. I don't pray for the world. I'm only praying for the ones that you have given me. Do I understand that? No, but that's what the text says. And they were given to us by the Lord unto his son. And because we belong to him, he is 
responsible for us. You're supposed to take care of what belongs to you. That's what your mom told you when you got the puppy, right? That's why you, as a father or a mother, you take care of your kids. You feed them, you clothe them, you educate them. You make sure they have everything that they need. And in the same way, the father watches over us because we belong to his son. So he prays for us because we belong to him. Secondly, he prays for us because, let's put it this way, because of mutual interest. Look at verse 10. And all mine are yours, and all yours are mine. In fact, to belong to the Father is to belong to the Son and to belong to the Holy Spirit, right? They don't compete. They all share in all of this, and we belong to all of them. The Trinity is involved with us. The Father planned our redemption. The Son paid for our redemption, and the Spirit brought us to redemption. The Trinity is involved in the timing of all of this. Think about this. With the Father, when was I saved? In eternity past. With the Son, when was I saved? As soon as he said, it is finished on Calvary. And with the Spirit, when was I saved? Whenever he brought me to the place where I confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. And so this mutual interest, whatever the Trinity is involved in, whatever happens in the kingdom of God, whatever happens in biblical prophecy, that involves me and you, and we are involved, we are included in the plan of God, and Jesus prays for us because of that mutual interest. That's really a mind-boggling thing, isn't it? Number three, he prays for us because we glorify him. Look at the next phrase. And I am glorified in them. You see, Jesus, if you ever do a study, look in your concordance at every time the phrase glory of God or something like that, something similar to that is used. And you'll find that when Achan committed his secret sin, at the battle of Ai in uh, the book of Joshua, when he was discovered, Joshua said, confess your sin and give glory to God. Did you know that every time you confess your sin, 1 John 1, 9, God is glorified in that? You can uh, think about all of the things and all of the ways. It's a fascinating study of how we actually are told that we glorify God. But think about this. The moment you believed in Jesus Christ, that was to the glory of God. You had been a rebellious sinner, believing all the lies of the devil, believing all the things of the world, functioning in pride and arrogance and independence. But now you came to see, you have come to see that Jesus is the only way to heaven, that he is Lord, and you confess him as Lord, and that his redemption is the only redemption, and you receive that as full payment for your sin and submit to him. You confess that Jesus is Lord, according to Philippians 2, to the glory of God the Father. After we believe what happens, we begin to grow, and we show evidence of our election. By their fruits, Jesus said, you shall know them. And we persevere. In other words, we continue to believe in spite of our sin. There are going to be these times when we fall into the pit. There are going to be times we fall into the mud puddles of life. There are going to be times when we wander off of the trail. And there are going to be times we don't look very much like a Christian. But the shepherd of the sheep comes and finds us, restores us, and brings us back. And what happens? In spite of our sin, in spite of our lapses, we return. We persevere. 
and we continue to believe. We don't abandon the faith because of what Jesus has done for us. We give him glory on the path from Calvary where we were saved until we go through the gates of pearl in heaven and we give glory to the Lord by our life as inconsistent and as awful as it may be every time every time God works his grace in us every time the good shepherd brings us home every time we repent of our sins and confess our sins God gets glory out of all of that and number four why does Jesus pray for us because he is not physically with us oh what a day it's going to be whenever we're able to look at him and see him but not now not now he is in heaven he's in a bodily form he's at the right hand of God the father and he's seated there until the Bible says his enemies become his footstool and he's not leaving until it's time to come back to get us so he sent his spirit and he's given us his word and the spirit and the word guide us notice verse 11 now I am no longer in the world but these are in the world you see the his time on earth his chronos on earth has ended now and there's a new season a kairos that has begun. You'll read about it in the book of Acts and in the epistles. And it continues on to this day. A new season. The Holy Spirit comes. The witness of the apostles begins. The scriptures are completed. And Jesus, during this time, intercedes for us in heaven. Can you imagine what it was like for the apostles to hear Jesus, the one that they loved, the one that they admired, the one that they had spent so much time with, this perfect man. Jesus was the man who had the perfect balance of seriousness, of humor, the perfect balance of, of personality in terms of likability and, and encouragement and all of those things. I mean, just the perfect man. Luke 2.52 talks about this. And now he's gone. How do you ask him, what should we do? Where should we go? And there were times when Jesus would dialogue with them. And can you imagine how good it must have felt to have the Son of God say, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. How good that must have felt. Can you imagine also how stinging the rebuke coming from him when the same Lord says to the same person he just blessed, when Peter said, you won't go to the cross, there's no reason for that. And he said, uh, get behind me, Satan, for you uh, don't um, follow the things of God, but the things of man and earth. You're thinking like the devil, in other words. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what it was like when you're in the boat in the midst of a storm and Jesus is sleeping and you're terrified. Even the professional sailors were terrified. And they wake him up and said, don't you care for us? And he said, oh, ye of little faith. And then he commands the winds to be still. And they are. And the sea becomes calm. To watch him feed 5,000. Would you look at that and go, what else do I need just to be with Jesus? Just to be with Jesus, whatever I need emotionally or physically or spiritually, I just need to be with Jesus. Now he's gone. 
Well, Jesus says, don't worry. I won't leave you as orphans. And be assured, I'm going to be praying for you. That ought to give us comfort as well. Let's conclude by just reading some more verses out of this. Because this is his prayer. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me. That they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you have given me, I have kept. And none of them is lost, well, except the son of perdition, the son of hell, Judas in order that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they were not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. What a prayer. Every need met and taken care of by the Lord who loves you, who died for you, who's prepared a place for you in heaven, but the one who also is praying for you even now. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And thank you so much for your time. And may the Lord bless you this week.